Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, January 30th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and this week's episode goes out to all our listeners in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Katrina, you want to call the hogs? Give us a woo pig suey. Oh gosh, no. I don't listen to that stuff. We're doing the (laughs) Razorback Sucker. We've got Tilden Jones joining us from our Upper Colorado River Endangered Fish Recovery Program in Utah. So we wanted to wish you a very warm welcome, Tilden. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate you having me today. So last year, we did another desert fish, another Colorado River fish, the humpback chub. When you look at it from a profile view, kind of has the same kind of big hump on its back. So I compared it to the Fiat Multipla, that ugly car that people talk about. But then when I was looking at pictures of the Razorback Sucker, because, you know, I, I grew up in Utah, so I've seen them a lot on those fish posters where they're all, you know, facing left and everything like that. But I'd never seen them kind of head on. And it really does have a more, it's kind of a keel-like structure, not so much of a hump. It's kind of this, this sharp shape. Does this structure function similar to what the humpback chubs have, or is it different, or what, what's up with that? Yeah, you're right. They look a little different. The humpback chub has more of a bulbous, rounded hump on its back, and the razorback has a very narrow, thin keel, like you mentioned, kind of like somebody flipped a boat upside down and the keel's sticking up out of it. Mm. The humpback chub's hump is fleshy, and the Razorback Sucker's razor is actually has bone underneath, so it's, a, it's part of the skeleton. So they're they're different in structure. They might function similarly. One idea is that the humps help them swim in these turbulent, fast rapids of the Colorado River system. Another idea is because they co-occur with Colorado pike minnow, which was the native top predator in the system before other fish were introduced, the pike minnow don't have teeth in their mouth. And so they have to swallow their prey whole. And if you have a big hump that makes it where the top predator can't swallow you, then you have a chance of swimming away and not being eaten. So, you know, maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe it helps with swimming. Maybe it helps you not get eaten at all. I don't see why it has to be one versus the other. Maybe it could serve two functions. I'd love to see a skeleton of this fish sometime. Oh, yeah. I don't know if there's any good pictures of a yeah. razorback skeleton, but that would be cool to see. What other features stand out with this fish? I mean, this is a sucker and this is a big sucker, right? I mean, what else, if someone had this fish and they were up close looking at it, what else would they notice about it? Yeah, it's a big sucker. They can get over three feet long and they're also very long lived, so they could be pretty old, over 40 years old. The, you know, sucker is mouth is on the bottom of its head so it feeds off the bottom we kind of think of them as little vacuum cleaners in the river that if you watch them in an aquarium they suck up the gravel and spit it back out they're really pretty colors especially if the water is clear or if they're in spawning condition they're kind of an olive green with a little bit of purple color mixed in and a really deep gold belly a really unique cool combination of colors I think those are the Mardi Gras colors, green, gold, and purples. Uh, And they are big. They're really robust, like little, almost like little footballs. When we see them as larvae, they're about 11 millimeters long, and they kind of look like a little piece of vermicelli or a grain of rice with eyeballs. (laughs) That's what what I think they look like. So they're really tiny when they emerge, and 
you can see pretty large differences in growth rates depending on temperature and food. But somewhere around 12 inches long, they get big enough where most pike minnow are not going to be able to eat them. Okay. And they have a pronounced razor at that size. But they actually, we see them with the razor, I don't know, three, four inches, they'll have a little a little bit of a razor that starts to emerge. So it, it grows early. You mentioned kind of the, the form on their back with the razor and the large river systems. Like, where are these fish found? Are they just in the Colorado River? And what kind of conditions are they experiencing there? Yeah, historically, they were found, and, and to some extent, even now, they're found throughout the Colorado River Basin and the large river tributaries. They do occasionally use the smaller tributaries seasonally, but they're found in the bigger rivers, the Green River, the Colorado River, the San Juan River, historically the Gila River, and all the way from the Gulf of California up through the warm water reaches of those river systems. Historically, they swim everywhere. We've seen them swim from the Colorado River down to Lake Powell and up the Green River. They seem to move around quite a bunch. So they're movers in the fish world, at least in our basin. So you're based in Vernal, Utah. So you're kind of down there below Flaming Gorge Reservoir. How far north in the Green River system did these fish used to go? Were they above Fontenelle or is that too cold? They were all the way into Wyoming, up into around Green River, Wyoming. And we've got uh, pictures and historical records of them occurring at the bottom of what's now Flaming Gorge Reservoir. They were definitely up that high at the Utah-Wyoming border. And are they still able to get up that high? No, the dam is a barrier, so they, they can't get past Flaming Gorge Dam. Really, they can't swim through any of the dams in the system. I don't know that we have fish passage on any of those large dams. We're talking Hoover Dam, Glen Canyon Dam, Flaming Gorge. These are really large, really tall. They can't swim through any of those, so they are fragmented by those larger dams throughout the basin. When we think about the life history cycle of a fish, what are some of the habitats that are really important to the species in particular for like spawning or just kind of important stages in that life history? Yeah, they're kind of unique and maybe more flexible than some of the other fish in the river system. We see them both in those river habitats and they use a variety of habitats throughout their life cycle. But we also see them in some of the lakes and reservoirs. So there's some remnant populations that were isolated by the reservoirs when they were constructed and razorback sucker are in some of those reservoirs. Hmm. And inhabit both lake environments and river environments. I'm more familiar with the river environments here in the Green River Basin, a little further upstream. And what we see is they migrate to spawning bars, so they can be very highly migratory and swim long distances. They lay their eggs in the cobbles, and the eggs are adhesive, so they actually stick to the cobbles, which is a great adaptation. If you live in a river, you don't want your eggs swept away necessarily. So they'll lay their eggs in the cobbles where they stick in between the rocks and that water flowing through the rocks keeps them oxygenated and allows them to develop in the rocks. They'll stay down in the rock habitat for a week to two weeks living off their yolk sac Mm -hmm. and then they'll swim up and emerge into the river and, and be swept downstream and drift. Sometimes quite a long distance downstream until they find really quiet, calm water habitats. We see them really looking, seeking out and taking advantage of 
floodplain wetlands that are connected during high flows. So a really cool thing about the fish is they spawn earlier in the year in the spring, just before the spring peak flow from snowmelt runoff. And those larvae typically emerge about the time of peak flow, which allows them to access wetlands, floodplain wetlands, because they're being carried with those high flows into oh, that's cool. the floodplain wetlands on the side of the river. Once they get in those wetlands, it's a great place for a larval fish. It's warmer and there's a ton of food. We just see explosions of Daphnia and other you know, zooplankton in the, in the wetlands and the razorback sucker really take advantage of those and feed on those, those invertebrates that are in those wetlands. Cool. We see that with other animals. I know birds migrate up here to Alaska and they time that with like emergence of bugs as well. So that's, uh, migration is a really kind of complicated thing and it's very strategic. It seems like on the part of the fish and other animals. That's cool. So do they have any kind of homing to a particular spawning ground or do they just wherever they happen to be that year that looks good they'll spawn there we think there's homing honestly most of the fish in the river are hatchery fish that have been stocked so they were born in a hatchery but they go to the spawning bar that they've used before they were brought to the hatchery which is interesting um they're definitely looking for you know those cobbles and looking for some habitat features We've seen them move into places we didn't know about. So I don't know if that's them moving into new areas where we just weren't there to see them when they were more numerous. Um, you know, we didn't mention that they're, they're listed as endangered currently. So they're, they're pretty rare or they have been rare and we're not necessarily sure what they were doing before they became rare. So there might be places that we just didn't know they'd used and now we're seeing them repopulate those areas. I have a couple follow-up questions. You're talking about that seasonal flooding that gives the juveniles or the, the larvae access to this habitat. Uh, one is, you know, when I think of the Colorado River, I'm thinking of, you know, Canyonlands National Park, the Grand Canyon, these really steep-walled areas. So what what is this habitat like above that where you're actually able to, because I don't think of there being room for wetlands. Everybody, yeah, everybody knows the canyons, the dramatic in your face scenery um, that the Southwest and the, the Colorado Plateau is known for. But we do have flatwater areas where I live in Vernal is one of them, the Uinta Basin, and there's maybe 100, 120 miles of what we call alluvial habitat, which is where the river slows down. It's not in a canyon. It meanders and makes big bends in the river. And it's a flatter, lower velocity section of river. But there's sections like that throughout the basin. So you'll have a canyon, and then you'll have a slow water section, and then another canyon. And in some places like Canyonland, you have slow water meanders within a canyon. So it's not white water, but it's a, a slow water canyon, which is you know, you could do a whole other podcast on the geology if you've talked. So they've got a diversity of habitats kind of mixed mixed around the plateau. And there are other examples of that from top to bottom. And these dams, do they have any effect on this seasonal flooding? Are they kind of regulating water uh, discharge? Are you still seeing that you get these seasonal floods that provide access to these habitats? Yeah, the dams definitely regulate the river conditions and the river flows. The first thing they do a lot of times is cool off the water because the water is released from the bottom of the reservoir. So you have temperature changes, 
but you also have the way these dams are designed is to collect the snow melt where the river really comes up fast in the spring as snow melts in the Rocky Mountains. And then in the historically in the summer, the rivers would get quite low and have much reduced flow. So the dams try to regulate that and catch yeah. the flow in the spring and then let it out through the summer. The so it's more regulated and moderated from dramatic up and down to a more consistent flow throughout the year. These fish seem to really key in on that dramatic flow in the spring, it sounds like, with the eggs dispersing. Yeah, I think it's important to remember how dynamic rivers are. They like meander, they spread out, and fish really key into that kind of dynamic nature of rivers. And it's as we learn more about fish, it's important to kind of think about how we change rivers and how that can impact species like this. That's interesting. We think the long life is related to this, the dramatic high peak flows and low flows and wet ears and dry ears. The the Colorado Plateau, if there's if there's anything about the rivers of the Colorado Plateau, it's they're dynamic and they're mm-hmm. always changing and they're highly variable. They can live over 40 years and we think that the long lifespan is an adaptation so that you can hit hit those events. You yeah. stick around long enough to have a couple good years. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, you're just hanging out waiting for those good years to show up so that you have maybe a couple good spawning years in your 40 year life and and make enough make enough babies to replace yourselves in the long mm-hmm. run. That's in stark contrast to we've covered salmon a lot on this show, <laughs> which as we know, those require if you're gonna die after spawning once, you need to have extremely consistent conditions in which to spawn. So this is a good, you know, counter example to that. Conditions are highly variable year to year. Got to spawn lots of different times. Yeah, we like to we like to rib our our salmon <laughs> counterparts a little bit about how our fish spawn and keep living. And it's funny we <laughs> our fish have actually our fish have actually tested the limits of technology with pit tags because uh, wow a lot of the pit tag technology was developed for salmon in the Northwest and like you said they're they're out there for what, three or four years, and then they, they spawn and died. And we started talking to the company that makes pit tags, and I'm like, we still have these fish, they're 20 years old, and I'm like, what do you mean they're 20 years old? Well, they've lived mm-hmm. 40 years. And they had all this equipment they were making that was obsolete, and we can't read the old tags. Mm. The old tags are still out there, but the new scanner won't read them. And so, oh, man. you know, we're pushing the limits of the technology that's used to monitor these things because the the company making them was thinking with the salmon mindset. And we're like, no, we've got 23-year-old like, fish still like VHS in the counter. Or something. <laughs> gotcha. Take note, technology developers yeah. in the fish I, world. <laughs> <laughs> so this year, so 2023 is the... 50th anniversary of the ESA. I know we wanted to cover this fish because it did get to extremely low numbers, like you mentioned. I'm kind of curious, kind of building the story of where things went and where they are today. How low did those numbers get? Where are we at today? And yeah, I just, I'm just kind of interested how things are progressing. Yeah, it was kind of a a slow process starting with the dam building in the lower basin and Hoover Dam in the 1930s. As I think I mentioned before, we'd see razorback suckers captured or caught or remnant populations left behind in these reservoirs that were created by dams. And they actually would do pretty well for a short period of time in the reservoir when it first developed. 
But as those fish aged out, we start to see the numbers decline. And as the populations are fragmented by dam building, they don't move from one place to the other, so they can't repopulate the sections of the river. So you see this slow decline from the lower basin around Hoover Dam moving upstream as more of those are built. And also the, the habitat changes we discussed with regulation of flows and, and the floodplains not necessarily being available to the point where in 1991 in the Green River, we were down to maybe a few hundred, around 300 fish left in the wild. And other than some fish in Lake Mead and some other fish that were bolstered by stocking elsewhere in the lower basin, those Green River fish were kind of the last of the wild razorbacks in the upper basin upstream of Lake Powell. And after that, the Fish and Wildlife Service went out, collected some of those remaining individuals, then put them in a hatchery for safekeeping and to also try to restore populations and, and put them back out into the river and repopulate different sections of the river where they were missing. Yeah. And how, how are they doing now in that stretch of the green? Yeah, we've stocked them both into the Green River, the Colorado River. They've been stocked into the San Juan River. And we've seen populations increasing of those stocked fish. I think one of the estimates for the green was maybe as many as 30,000 razorbacks in the Green River. So from 1991 till 2020, roughly 30 years, we've seen them from a few hundred to tens of thousands, I guess. Um, yeah. Also in the Colorado River, those stocked fish are taking hold and, and the numbers are increasing there and the San Juan River as well. What other techniques are you guys using? So you've mentioned bringing them in hatchery, stocking them, but I know you can do things with how dams actually, you know, put out water and invasive species are, I'm guessing, an issue as well. What are some of the other techniques you guys are using to help them? Yeah, so the stocking was the first part we had to, we had to get them back out in the river. We had to get the numbers up. And that's, like I said, that seems to be working. We've done some habitat projects. So we've connected floodplain wetlands to the river so that they connect to lower flows, the flows that we have now. So we've tried to give them access to those habitats and manage those habitats as well to prevent non-native fish from colonizing those same areas that Razorback Sucker use. You did mention dam flows. We have flow recommendations for multiple dams throughout the basin where we have recommendations on spring peak releases and base flows through the summer. Flighting Gorge is the one that comes to mind where we we actually have a spring peak release that is timed to when the razorback sucker larvae show up in the river so we have people out looking for razorback sucker in the river and when they find larvae we call viewer reclamation and let them know they're there get a lot of different partners and agencies on the phone and say is this the time and then schedule the release to coincide with those razorbacks in the river so we're actually timing releases from the dam to what the fish are telling us it's time for them to be doing awesome have you ever observed or worked in any of the hatcheries spawning these guys or no very little but somewhat yeah i mean we i helped inject so so to spawn Mm -hmm. we inject them with hormone hormones Mm -hmm. to get them into spawning conditions so they actually produce eggs and milt and it helped with the injections to get them ready for spawning. Well, I, I was going to ask, because I think the hatchery process is interesting, especially because, you know, you're dealing with these, like, threatened and endangered species. I remember one time I was out 
working in Utah, and I was there for one of the first spawnings of bluehead suckers, not to be confused with blue suckers or bluehead chubs. <laughs> uh, but we were spawning, and we kind of get them there, and it's like, okay, this is a species we're putting lots of money. We're trying to make sure that we can recover it, and then where you, we're just stripping them into like old Cool Whip containers. Could have come out of the guy's <laughs> fridge in the morning, wash out like all the leftover cottage cheese or whatever. Uh, and I'm like, you like a feather too. I don't know that we yeah, didn't use do. a feather for that one. So I'm just curious, like what? <laughs> they have some pretty cool and specialized equipment. There's no cool up containers that I'm aware of. They might use a Ziploc bag to kind of mix them up and they get things mixed around, but they spawn them in the hatchery. So we're not on the bank of a river or anything. They're pulling them out of the ponds and putting them in tanks. So they, like I said, they inject them with hormones to, to get them to produce eggs and melt. They do strip the eggs and melt into containers and they do stir it with a turkey feather. So mm. that's a, a long standing, okay. <laughs> yeah, a long standing hatchery practice. But then they put them in jars that have a little bit of flow from the bottom. So it actually stirs mm. the eggs up. It, it looks like one of those, if you remember that game with the, is it bubble rings or the game where you, you push the thing with your thumb and it, it ring toss in the water? Did you ever see that as a kid? No. Must be old. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what, what, wait, game, what okay. it's this ring toss game where you hit the it's 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 this it like little plastic game full of water huh. and you push the thing with your thumb and it makes the rings it shoots it squirts a jet of water into the game that tosses these rings up and you're trying to get the rings to go on on little spikes and get them to okay. land on the I'll spike. Look that up. Anyway, there's a little jet of water at the bottom that keeps the eggs mixed up so they don't stick together and clump at the bottom. So it keeps mm. them floating and oxygenated and separated. So they have some pretty specialized jars, hatching jars where the eggs go in there. And then as the larvae swim up, they spill out of the jars into the holding tank where they can start feeding them. So oh, that's cool. a little more high tech, but there is a turkey felt. So. That's fancy. I, I was watching a video of a woman down with Arizona fishing game. Her hatching jars were just looked like she was using old Dasani bottles that she got out of the recycling for. And it, it was for Razorback. It was for Razorback flannel mouth hybrids. They're doing some study with those. So. Oh yeah, yeah. I've seen some of that work and saw what they did with that. That's that was interesting stuff. Yeah. Awesome. I don't think we can top that. So what's next for this fish? I mean, you have some techniques you're obviously using to get the numbers up. Can we expect like an uplisting to threatened at some point or just kind of what's the future outlook for them, you think? Yeah, there's some proposals to change the status from endangered to threatened because of the numbers that we're seeing and some of the evidence of recruitment. That doesn't take them off the endangered species list. That just says that they're on the right path and they're moving in the right direction. So they're still protected. But right now, our big focus here in the upper basin is to improve recruitment from juvenile to adult. We see the hatchery fish spawning. We see lots of larvae. We're starting to see more juveniles. So we're just working our way up the, the age from you know more larvae to more juveniles and hopefully more adults. And we're really focusing on completing the life cycle. Now that we have pretty good numbers of fish in the river, that's the next step is getting those those younger life stages to turn into adults and complete the cycle. Are the adult fish that you're seeing coming from the hatcheries? Or are you seeing natural recruitment from eggs to adults in the wild? That's a great question. 
we've seen more evidence of wild juveniles. So we've seen larvae recruiting into juvenile stages. And we this last year in 2022 is the best example where we, we saw over 4,500 wild juvenile razorbacks from those floodplain wetlands. And that was a result of the timing of the flows, the habitat management that we did. We have gates where we, when the larvae are in the river and the flows come up, we, we open the gates and the river water goes into the wetlands with mm-hmm. larvae in the water. Um, and then we raise them up in those floodplains that we released over 4,500 of those fish back out to the river. That's happened over the last roughly 10 years. We've been doing that flow management plus habitat management in tandem combined. And we are starting to see some of those wetland fish that were juveniles. Um, we've actually seen some of those juvenile fish coming back to the spawning bar six years later. So we're starting to see evidence of those juvenile fish turning into adults. Awesome. Are there any non-native fishes that are helping to make that recruitment not happen in terms of eating these fish? Or what's the what's kind of that pinch point there for those juveniles, do you think? I think it's partially habitat. So one of the progressions that we see is in the past the the floodplains were cut off. So there was no there was very limited access to habitat except in the biggest water years. So we reconnected the habitat and the fish have started using it. We've done some more management like screening the habitat so the non-native fish don't get in. You'll get the larvae of non-native fish will go into the floodplains with the razorbacks, but the razorbacks grow fast enough that they outgrow the mouth size of those non-native fish. So you can put them in at the same time, but the razorbacks will outgrow them, which is is great. We've managed the habitat to reduce the non-native fish but throughout the Colorado Basin, you're right, there there are introduced species. There's just a host of non-native fish that we contend with or razorback sucker have to contend with. We've got things like northern pike with big teeth and big mouths that razorback sucker are not adapted to deal with. We like to say our native fish are friendly. They don't have teeth in their mouth. They don't have mm-hmm. spines. So they're not going to poke you. They're not going to bite you. But the introduced species do have spines and teeth and armor and thick scales. So our fish aren't really adapted to a a toothy predator that can bite them in half. And that's one aspect. There's also the aspect of competition where there's just a lot of other fish out there competing for the same resources and the razorback sucker have to make, trying to make a living in the river with all these introduced fish like carp that are eating the same things. What about pelicans? Oh, jeez. I got to ask, because, you know, one one theory that I've heard from the fishermen up there below Fontenelle, below Flaming Gorge, is that you got these pelicans that eat up all the small trout. So all you have left are the big trout that the pelicans can't eat. And so I would imagine if that's true, and there are big trout up there, don't get me wrong, that, you know, a pelican could just as easily eat a razorback sucker as it could a rainbow trout. So do you see any issues with that or are the pelicans not a concern? We do see pelicans on the wetlands we manage, and it can be a little frustrating because it looks like they're very successful at herding, like herding cattle, um, herding the fish and capturing them and eating them. They're definitely eating something in the wetlands, whether they're razorbacks or carp. I hate pelicans. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're a cool bird, and it's, it's cool to see them. There's a study they did up on Strawberry Reservoir where 
I can't remember the exact results, but it didn't seem like the pelicans were preferentially eating one species over the other. I think they're eating whatever they can catch. But yeah, there are birds, pelicans, great blue herons, mm-hmm. cormorants, mergansers. These things get into the hatchery. Oh, man, and all fish to, eating birds there. Yeah, yeah. they. They have to put nets over the ponds at the hatchery so the birds don't get in and wipe them out. Freaking um, birds! I don't. Yeah, I don't know that. I don't know that the birds are the biggest problem, but they're they're just another set of mouths out there that these fish have to have to negotiate and contend with. Yeah, you happy you got your pelican question in? <laughs> I am. Add a little bit of levity to this. You know, it, it's a good story, though. I mean, it is rebounding, but, you know, it, it, that's the, the typical way that recovery goes. It's not like, oh, we found what was wrong and now they're back. It's years and decades of hard work and gradually it gets better. And that's not a super exciting story, even if it is generally pleasing. And so, you know, <laughs> pelican question can make things a little bit more exciting. Yeah, it took us 60 years to get from, you know, Hoover down to listing in 1991. So I don't know that this that we're going to steer the ship in the right direction overnight, but uh, it's good to see that over the last 20 or 30, we've, we've got it headed in the right direction. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, including the Razorback sucker, and be careful with those pelicans. Okay, guys, so Tilden followed up with me about the name of the game he described, and it's a vintage waterfall ring toss. So go check that out if you're interested. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.